Well, I am really proud of you for your rugged individualism. I know some took the safe route, slept in this morning thinking they were going to wake up to nine inches, but not you. No, sir. You got those four-wheel drives out? Made your way to Amen Bible Study. That's great. That'll be it for the year. Just dust yourselves off. Wait for next winter. All right. We are looking at a very, very important text in the Bible that's found in uh, Mark chapter 9. And the reason it's very, very important is because it, it follows the climax of this whole uh, first part of the book when Peter confesses Christ as the Christ. And Jesus tells them about the cross, not only his cross, but their cross. And they don't get it completely. And they, they really won't until Pentecost, to tell you the truth. But, but after he describes his cross and their cross, we have this most unusual event of the transfiguration. And I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out why the transfiguration is there. What is that all about? And if, if you look at the, the church calendar, uh, th- those of you who come from liturgical churches, there, there are really twi- there's two points in the year when the transfiguration is celebrated, once at August and once at other time. And it's kind of like we don't know where to put it. Uh, because folks can't make a whole lot of sense out of it. And that's part of the meaning of it, I think. But I think it's, we're going to see that it, it follows this event of Christ being revealed as the Christ and then telling about the cross. And then this transfiguration comes. We're going to see how the juxtaposition of taking up your own cross and the transfiguration of Jesus really is important. It's important in your life that you have those things juxtaposed in your own life. Let's read the text and see uh, why it makes such an earth-shattering difference uh, to us in our own uh, lives as men. This is uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Okay, what we're going to see here in verses 2 through 8 is that we must understand the true glory of Jesus Christ. 
We must understand the true glory of Jesus Christ, even as we read the Gospels uh, this year together and see his humanity and see his great suffering. We must understand his glory because you can't understand what his suffering means, suffering means unless you understand who he is. And you can't understand who he is unless you see him with the cross as well. But we must understand the true glory of Jesus Christ. And it's obvious because, first of all, we're going to see in verses 2, 3, and 4 that God reveals to us the glory of Jesus Christ. God makes sure that we're going to see it. He makes it known to us. Uh, we, we've heard that G.K. Chesterton said the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. And the question for you is, what do you think about God? What do you think about Christ? It's actually the most important thing about you. God takes action to be sure that we know His glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, in that famous prologue, we're told no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. So the very purpose of Jesus Christ is to make known who God is. And God in all of His glory shows Himself through Christ. And He means for us to know Him. I've put here for you a little quote out of uh, a book you might want to read someday called God in the Wasteland by David Wells. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to stanch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And His Christ is too common. We're going to see that what... Jesus, what God is sure to do is to make sure the disciples remember that Jesus is not common. Yes, He came to live among us commoners. Yes, He came to take on our flesh. Yes, in that sense you could call Him common. But there's another side to Jesus. There's His deity and His glory. And we must always remember who He is. Now, the reason this is so important is we're going to see that this vision of Christ continues to inspire us. It continues to inspire These disciples, you'll find Peter later in his life, uh, toward the end of his life. And Peter, of course, uh, eventually we we are told from historians, uh, was himself uh, crucified. And he said he wanted to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being crucified in the same way that Jesus was. But uh, we find that Peter was continually inspired by a vision. And you'll see that vision in 2 Peter. He says in chapter 1, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is My Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him. On the sacred mountain. Peter remembered this years and years later. And it inspired him. And what difference did it make? Well you can look in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he says. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 
So Peter says, we're not giving you cleverly invented stories. No, we saw his majesty. We heard the voice. I was there. And he says, we live in the fear of God. So we walk in reverent fear. That's, we, walk, we walk in gratitude for his grace. We walk in love because he first loved us. But brothers, we also walk in fear because our father happens to be king. And our older brother, Jesus Christ, our Savior, happens to be king. And he's awesome. So we all need an inspired vision of who Jesus is in order to inspire us to live a life that is worthy of him. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we, uh, fearing God, we persuade men. So the way in which we relate to other people, our whole call to be witnesses, to be evangelists, to proclaim the gospel around the world, we're doing this in the fear of God. Yes, it's out of gratitude for the Lord. And you'll see Paul saying that in 2 Corinthians 5. That, you know, we, the love of Christ constrains us, he says later on in that text. So the love is constraining us too, but it's loving fear or reverent love, however you want to put it. So this vision of Christ is very important. And what I find is that most of the time we don't think of Jesus the way that he is here in the transfiguration, even in our day. I remember, this is years ago, Probably 25 years ago, I was leading a little Bible study. There were two pastors and their wives in it, and there were two missionaries and their wives in it, and Allison and me. And I've forgotten what text we were studying, but I just asked everyone to close their eyes. And I said, I want you to imagine Jesus Christ. Just close your eyes and imagine Jesus Christ. Okay? Now open your eyes. Tell me what you saw. Well, one of them said that he... He saw Jesus walking along the road uh, with uh, his disciples. One said that he saw Jesus sitting on a, on a rock with little children around him. One said that he saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with his elbows on a rock and praying and sweat and blood uh, coming down his uh, forehead and so on. We went all through all these images. You know what? I noticed every one of those images were pre-resurrection. Furthermore, every one of those images came out of that big fat family Bible. <laughs> really think about it. all those pictures in your big family Bible when you grew up. And it was right there on the coffee table. Uh, all these images, those, those pictures stick very strongly in your head. And every one of these men and women, missionaries, pastors, the vision they had of Jesus Christ, when they thought of him, they saw him in what we would call theologically his humiliation. You know, Jesus comes from heaven. He's humiliated in successive steps. He's He's conceived, he's born of a virgin, under the law, circumcised, he suffers, he dies, he's buried. But then you have his exaltation. He's resurrected, he ascends, he sits at the right hand, he comes back in glory. Every one of the pastors and missionaries saw Jesus in his humiliation. Didn't see him in his exaltation. And I I suggest to you, when most of us think of Jesus Christ, we think of him pre-resurrection. And you say, what's wrong with that? Well... There's nothing wrong with that if that's part of your understanding of who Christ is because certainly he came to, to live among us and to look just like us. But he wasn't just like us. He was the glorified Jesus Christ in flesh, humbling himself. And the vision for today, if you want to know what Jesus Christ is like today, well, of course, you turn back to one of our previous uh, Bible studies in Revelation. And if you want to take a minute, let's just turn to Revelation chapter 1. And here's who Jesus is right this very minute. If you were to lay eyes on him in Revelation chapter 1, this is page 2056. 
I, John, this is verse 9, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Lord God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice. They were speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There you go. That's Jesus. That's who he is. The problem with the church today, as Wells says, is that the character of God, we could say the character of Christ, falls inconsequentially upon the church. That's the reason that the Spirit said to John in Revelation chapter 1, write this down and send it to the seven churches. The church needs to know how glorious their Lord is. Send it to the churches. And gentlemen, today you need a letter sent to you again. This is who I am. That's the reason for the transfiguration. It's so that we all recapture a vision of who this Jesus is with whom we're dealing. So let's look at what God gives us. And in verse 2a, you'll see the time and place were suggested because, first of all, it's after six days and it's up on a high mountain. Now, hold your finger there and go back to Exodus chapter 24 and let's see how this parallels a very important moment uh, in the Old Testament. Moses is going up the mountain to receive the tablets from the Lord. And in verse 15, this is Exodus 24, 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Look at this. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So, back to verse 16. For six days the cloud covered the mountain until the revelation took place on the seventh day. So six days is seen as a period of preparation. That's not the only place, but obviously that's the key place because there you have a a revelation given to Moses about who the Lord is. So it's a special period of time. Luke says eight days. We won't go into it. Uh, there's a, a difference in the... In the well, Luke says about eight days. Uh, we don't know exactly why he says that, but Mark makes the point that it was six days, a period of preparation for this transfiguration. It was on the mountain. What happens on mountains? They're places of revelation. Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself to Moses. Mount Sinai, where God revealed himself to Elijah. You remember Elijah had the great battle with Jezebel and her prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth uh, up near Mount Carmel, 850 of them, slew all of them, great victory, and then he gets afraid of Jezebel and starts running and goes down to this wilderness area where Moses was and pouts and is depressed. And God says to him, get up and get something to eat. And then he says, go out 
and get a vision. So what did he do for Elijah when he was depressed? Same thing he would do for you when you're depressed. Get something to eat, get some rest, and then get a vision. Get a renewed vision of who God is. That's what it's all about. That's what inspires your life. That's what gives it meaning. And he says to Elijah, go out. I'm going to make myself known to you. And you remember what happens? The wind comes, the hurricane, then the earthquake comes, and then the fire comes, maybe the lightning, whatever it was. But then the still small voice. So that God makes His grandeur known in the power and the glory of His own creation. We see that His hand made it all, controls it all, and He can turn it anytime He wants to onto us. And then He speaks to you in a still small voice. It was a gentle whisper, the Word of God. And then He tells Elijah, go out and ordain Elisha. So go out and develop other leaders. Get busy. Let's get this thing going. Pass the baton on. I'm getting ready to take you out of here. And he did just a little bit later. Took Elijah out of there. But Elisha was ordained because God took a depressed servant, fed him through the ravens, gave him bread, and gave him a renewed vision, and then got him involved in the ministry of of building up leaders. So this is not about you, and it's not about this century, and it's not about your generation. It's about the kingdom of God that goes through the generations. Get up. Get busy with it. Pass the baton on. Let's get this thing going. So he had a re- but he had a renewed vision of who God was. That was on Mount Sinai. And just a couple of years ago, uh, some of us took our newly graduated high school senior girls on a trip to Egypt and Jordan and uh, Israel. And uh, so we started in Egypt. It was a little scary to be on a bus being trailed with a jeep with machine guns, <laughs> but nonetheless, it was worthwhile. We got got into the, uh, the area of the Sinai, and uh, I was very uh, eager to get through the Sinai myself because I've been to Israel several times, but never just never taken the time to go into Sinai. So we traveled all the way from Egypt through the Sinai, and I wanted to feel the Sinai wilderness. We got out of the bus on several occasions. We got on the hot sand, and the wind was blowing. The sand is hitting your face. It's painful. It's very hot. This was, of course, in June. And uh, I just wanted to feel it. And it, was, it just takes the energy right out of you. And to, to imagine these, these uh, 2 million people, 600,000 men with wives and children, going through that wilderness to make their way to the Sinai. And after several hours, of course, we came uh, to the mountainous area. Uh, we went to bed that night in St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, we get up to start hiking. Maybe it was 1 o'clock in the morning because it's a three-hour hike of Mount Sinai. And uh, I've been working out for several months to get ready for this great feat. And um, so we just hike in the dark with flashlights all the way up Mount Sinai. You get there in time to see the sun rise. You realize it's a long hike up Mount Sinai. You get up there and you see the sun rise over the eastern horizon. And the glory of all the mountains around you, you couldn't see in the dark when you were hiking up there. Just a, just a place where if you want to meet God, that's a great place to meet him. <laughs> if you want to sing songs of praise, that's a great place to sing them. Where God revealed himself to Moses, where God revealed himself to Elijah, God made himself known on the mountain. And it's no accident that when Jesus is ready to, to show his boys something important, he takes them up what we believe was probably uh, Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet high. Uh, the, uh, very near Caesarea Philippi. Could have been Mount Tabor in Galilee. Some suggest it's there. But I, I think most scholars would say it was probably Mount Hermon. Took them up to the highest mountain. Big hike. Took them many hours. And they got to the top where they could see out and get a vision. See, see out. You need to get up to 9,000 feet, 30,000 feet and see out. How do you do that? In Christ, you're going to see out. You're going to see the big picture. 
So it's on a mountain after six days of preparation and a long hike. He gets them ready to see who he is. This is not something you can do on the backstroke. It's not something you can do while you're also listening to the radio going to work. This is something you need to put time into if you want a vision. You need to see. You need to think. You need to pray. You need to contemplate. And it's very, very important. So the time and place were suggestive, uh, both from Exodus 24 and from 1 Kings 19. And gentlemen, notice this wasn't just Moses and Elijah. If you look at the prophets, you'll find that that Elisha too had his vision. What was his vision? The, the fiery chariot and horses taking Elijah up into heaven. He saw the power of God and the glory of God. What about Isaiah? Isaiah who had been a prophet and the king dies after 55 years and he's depressed, goes into the temple and what does he see? Kaboom! The Lord Adonai high and lifted up and the robe, the train of his robe filled the temple and the seraph were flying back and forth singing holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah had a vision to prophesy. Why did he have to have a vision? Because he was going to prophesy and preach to people who were going to reject him. In fact, you see it in Isaiah chapter 6. After the vision, God says, Go now preach to people who will hear and not understand, who will see and not perceive. And Isaiah says, How long? Well, until his judgment is through. So you go into a world, everybody doesn't believe what you believe. They don't believe what you're going to say. They don't like you because you said it. What's going to keep you going? Same thing that keeps Isaiah going, a vision of the Lord, high and lifted up. And we find from John chapter 12, who was that one that Isaiah saw? John says it was Jesus Christ in His pre-incarnate glory. So Isaiah saw Christ. That's what kept him going. Moses, we we are told, had a vision of Christ in the rock. So it is Christ and His glory that compels men as well as the love of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. It's both. You have to be compelled by His love and by His awesome majesty. Both, all the time. We'll talk about how to get that, but you'll see that all the servants, think about Ezekiel, same thing, the wheel within a wheel, this incredible vision of God, the sovereign God, a wheel within a wheel that could go any direction. That is, God is mobile. God goes everywhere. God is omnipresent. His glory is all over the earth and throughout the universe, and Ezekiel had to get this. It didn't matter if the children of Israel were in exile. God's glory was still with them. It doesn't matter if you're in exile away from your city of Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. It doesn't matter that you're strangers and pilgrims. God's glory is with you because His sovereignty is everywhere. Ezekiel had to have that vision in order to mobilize Him and motivate Him each day. And that's the reason for the transfiguration. That's the reason for the very special details about it. So first of all, the time and place were suggestive. Secondly, His transfiguration was dramatic. My goodness, look at this. He was metamorphosed. That's the word that's used here, metamorphosis. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than a fuller could bleach them. A fuller, fuller's bleach is real bleach, boys. I mean, you want something really white, you get a fuller to bleach it. And Mark is saying it was whiter. Peter told me it was whiter than anything he'd ever seen in his life. I heard R.C. Sproul one time say that the reason that it was whiter than white is because of, the, of light itself that, that the source of light would be whiter than white. Uh, there's a long uh, scientific explanation for that. But when we're told that he's brighter than the sun, how do you get brighter than the sun? Because he's the source of the sun's light. He's whiter than white uh, in his light. So here he is 
dramatically transfigured before them. Thirdly, look at the witnesses. What's the meaning of Elijah and Moses being there talking with Jesus? Here's the meaning of it. They were witnesses with eschatological significance. This is what it means. Moses is the one who told them in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet coming after me. Listen to him. Elijah was the prophet who told about the coming of the end of the ages, the big prophetic witness that one day the Messiah would be coming. And here he is, the one Moses talked about, the one Elijah talked about. They are the witnesses pointing to Jesus, just like John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's Moses and Elijah coming back, as it were, from the dead, pointing to Jesus Christ as witnesses. I mean, this is, this is like all-star time. I mean, this is Hall of Fame. Everybody is saying, nothing for us, everything for him. So that's the meaning of Moses and Elijah being there, that this is the end of the age. This is it. This is everything the Bible ever promised, pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, why did God do this? Clearly, so that we would fear him and understand who the real champion of the world is. Uh, we're in a week when we've got <clears throat> the Super Bowl and the, we just had Miss America and we've got the Oscars coming up and all these, these things. Uh, by the way, go Colts. But you've got all these things. You know, the, the, the pantheon of the most beautiful, uh, the, the most successful, the, the most powerful, the most gifted. And we, get, we have this pantheon of our, of our demigods, you know. And... and Elijah and Moses, I mean, you just don't get any higher than that, and they're both pointing to Jesus Christ. They're saying, drop your other gods. Drop all the foolishness. Drop the stupid little comparisons between one sinful human being and another sinful human being. What the heck difference does it make? Let's get our eyes on what difference it does make when you look at the one who is truly glorious. That's the reason for this revelation in, in the transfiguration. Now, let's see how the disciples respond. And, of course, you expect them to respond with perfect reverence, fear, and excellent theological teaching. Uh, what they do, of course, is they cannot comprehend what in the heck is going on here. The glory of Jesus Christ exceeds our capacity to comprehend. Number one, we say foolish things. Hey, I know what, Jesus. Let's put up three booths right here. Let's make a little memorial, okay? Hey, I'll get the sticks, okay? <sighs> Peter doesn't know what to do with it. He, uh, and, and he doesn't really understand. If you, I say here we ought to look at Acts 1, 6. There's when, Jesus, when Peter and the disciples are saying to Jesus right before his ascension, after his resurrection, Peter says, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we'll see that he uses this whole idea of restoration in a few minutes. Peter does. just doesn't understand who Jesus is and the kingdom that he came to build. Doesn't get it. Here, build three booths. And why did he say this? Because he was so stupefied, so frightened, that he didn't know what else to say. <laughs> now, I have a suggestion for you. If Jesus shows up and, and is transfigured before you, just go like this. <laughs> just don't say anything. Because if you say something, it's going to be stupid. So just keep your mouth open. And don't say anything. Just quiet. You'll be a whole lot better off. People think you're smart when you don't say anything. Uh, it's, of course, it's too late for Peter. <laughs> We've already heard from him several times. But he's just stuck in this awesome experience. He just wants to say something. It's, uh, it's kind of like when you had a real deep spiritual experience and, you know, 
someone says, hey, how about those cardinals? You go, well, you know, it just doesn't make any sense in that, in that moment. So Peter was frightened, didn't know what to say, and it's the same way with ourselves. We, we, we have a hard time comprehending, taking in the majesty of Christ. We'll never take it all in, uh, but we are to be cultivated to do so. Now, why this big revelation? Well, you, you get it in verses 7 and 8. God is commanding us to obey His Son. He's not just saying, hey, boys, I want to give you a fireworks show you'll never forget. No, I want to show you the majesty of my son so that you will be moved to listen to every single word out of his mouth and put it into practice so that everything that he did, you'll copy him so that you want to become exactly like him. That's the reason I'm showing you his glory. There's a purpose in our seeing his glory. So the cloud envelops him. And we saw from Exodus chapter 24, and you see other places there where the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God appears, is the, the cloud of his presence, and Jesus is completely enveloped in it. And then you hear the voice, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And in Genesis 22, you get that same language about the one and only beloved son, Abraham and Isaac. And God is saying, Here is my Isaac. Here is my one and only son whom I love. This is the one that I'll be putting up for sacrifice and I will not stay the hand of the angel uh, to, uh, or the angel will not stay the, the hand of Abraham to slay him. He will be slain. But here's my Isaac. Here's my precious one. That's what God is saying. And he's saying to us, listen to it. It's the same kind of language you get in the baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. It's the real point. It's the reason for us to know who Jesus is so that we'll listen carefully to him. That's the reason that when we do Bible study and you get to your discussion questions and you have those about going deeper. You know, each week now we have three questions or so in there about going deeper. What does that mean? It's how do you apply the voice of Jesus Christ to your own life and make it count? And I hope you're going there with those deeper questions. You're asking yourselves the deeper questions so that in a personal, intimate encounter with Christ, you're coming clean with Him, you're trusting Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're trusting Him alone for the guidance in your life. You're letting Him in instead of blocking Him off like you do a lot of other people, defending yourself, keeping them at bay. Let Him in. Let Him deal with you in your heart. That's what it means to listen to Jesus Christ, and that's the reason for the transfiguration and for whatever vision you have of Him. And then we see, uh, thirdly, that this vision, this encounter transforms us. And we've made reference here already to the verse in Second Peter chapter 1. But look what happens in verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus. Okay, the fireworks are over. That moment of illumination is past. And now it's just you alone with Jesus Christ encountering him. So what are you going to do? You're looking at him. Now he's, he's just like you thought of him before. He's a Nazarene, carpenter's son, poor preacher from Nazareth. Here he is, right back where he was. But you had a living encounter with him in his glory, and you'll never be the same. So this encounter is meant to transform us. Now, let's look at the second idea here that comes up after the transfiguration, which is this in verses 9 through 13. We must understand not only the glory of Christ, but the sufferings of the glorious Christ. Now, this is where things get put together and we see the purpose of the transfiguration in its moment where it is in Mark's gospel. 
It comes after Jesus predicts his own death and after he says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Then you get the transfiguration. Do you see how glory and suffering are going together? How the cross and the crown must always be held together. So we must understand the sufferings of the glorious Christ in, under, to, in order to understand him. Now, only then can we explain Christ's glory. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Christ knows this glory. He knows that he's going to be risen from the dead. He's holding that in his heart. You remember the verse in Hebrews 12 that he endured the cross, Jesus Christ endured the cross and scorned its shame. How? Back up. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned the shame. So in Jesus' heart, this was an important moment for him. The Father gave it to him to reassure him, my son, I love you. You're my one and only. I have this whole world listening to you. I put the whole world at your feet. I'm going to glorify you. And God gave him a moment when Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus. And I imagine those were words of encouragement. Jesus, you're the one. You're the one we spoke about. You read our writings in your childhood. Jesus, what we wrote about was about you. And Jesus himself was being encouraged and affirmed in his ministry. He was shown, hey, I'm glorious. I'm the son of the father. He is going to keep his promises to me. I'm here, yes, to suffer. But because of the joy set before me, I'll endure the cross that is now before him in the rest of Mark's chapters. Now, gentlemen, what do you have before you? This very day, you've got a cross. If you're following Jesus Christ, you took up your cross. What's your cross? Your death. You're laying down your life to follow Him. And you have a moment too when you realize Jesus is transfigured. Guess what? So will I be. And so for the joy set before you, you will endure that cross and scorn its shame. The fact that you're ready to die for Jesus Christ, even shamefully if you had to. You scorn it. You spit on it. You hold it in contempt because of the incomparable joy of where you're headed. And you've seen it because you've seen it in Christ and you know you're following Him. And whatever happens to Him, it's going to happen to you. So first of all, Jesus knows it for Himself, but secondly, we know it. We know it for ourselves. We know who Jesus is. Yes, they're going to see Him die on the cross and they won't really get it till later, but they'll remember He told us that He is the transfigured Lord. He is the glorious Lord even in His suffering. See, the problem is in your life and in mine, that we can read all we want to, that we're sons of the living God, that we are princes in the kingdom. But shoot, when you go to work and people hold you in contempt and think that you're stupid because you're a follower of Jesus, sure doesn't feel like glory to me. Does it to you? It only does if you have a transcendent, transtemporal vision that takes you through the crap. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing for himself and it's what he's doing for you. That's the reason that Peter beheld his majesty and was encouraged. Not just for Jesus, but for himself. Now, when we get to to verses 11 and 12, these last two verses, we'll see that only when we understand the sufferings of the glorious Christ can we see God's faithfulness. And here's how this works out. Look at verse 11. They asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Here's what they're saying. Jesus had said to them something about the resurrection from the dead. In verse 10, you see, they kept muttering to themselves, what in the heck does the resurrection from the dead mean? 
They, can't, they don't have a paradigm for it. But let me tell you, tell you what their paradigm was. Here's what they, they were taught as boys. That one day when Messiah comes from Daniel, when, when the Son of Man comes, Messiah comes, there will be a resurrection of all the saints. So there will be a general resurrection. So they don't understand what Jesus means about an individual resurrection. They think of resurrection as being at the end of time, at the end of the ages. What Jesus is showing them is that His resurrection begins the end of the ages. That He's the firstborn among many brothers, the firstborn out from the dead among many brothers. So he's, His individual resurrection is going to inaugurate the end of the ages, at the end of which there will be this Jewishly understood general resurrection. But the disciples were only thinking in terms of general resurrection. So they were saying to Jesus, I'm putting this in other words, so, but it seems clear this is what they're saying. Okay, Jesus, if the resurrection, they're thinking general resurrection, is nearby us in time, aren't we supposed to have Elijah coming to us as Malachi said in chapter 4? So they're saying, shouldn't we be seeing some Elijah form if we're going to have the resurrection? That's where they're all mixed up and confused. And notice then how Jesus responds to them uh, in Verse 13, he says, Elijah has come. Did you miss it? He's already been here. And let me tell you something. They did to him whatever they wanted to do. That is, he suffered too. Oh, you didn't know about that. When Elijah comes, he gets killed. Really? Yeah. John the Baptist. There's your Elijah. And they did to him whatever they wanted to do. Brothers, anyone who has walked in the kingdom of God, man after man after man, generation after generation after generation, has faced persecution, death, has taken up his cross. Every one of them, including the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the greatest man who ever lived up until the time of Jesus, John the Baptist, the greatest one who ever lived, was put to death by the church. He says he came. You missed it. Did you not get it? Did you, you didn't understand that suffering goes with this whole idea. They wanted this gloriously restored kingdom with no pain. So he's saying, first of all, he came. So that, that is to say, those who come before the Messiah will suffer. Secondly, look in verse 12. Uh, he says, uh, uh, Why then is it written that the Son of Man, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. So the Son of Man suffers. The Messiah suffers. So he's saying it's predicted that a Messiah will suffer and Elijah, the ones who come before him, will suffer. And then it's not in the text, but here's the implication. Number three, you're going to suffer too. And you're going to ask the same questions. Could this really be what it means to be a Christian? Could this, what, could this really be what it means to have God's favor on my life, that I'm struggling to get my electric bill paid at the end of the month? Is this, is this what it all comes to? It, could it be that my popularity has gone down ever since I became a follower of Christ? Is this what the kingdom is all about? And you begin to ask yourself these questions. You doubt it. Could this really be it? Yes. Elijah was killed for being Elijah. John the Baptist. Jesus was killed for being Messiah. And so shall his followers be. If you look at the shields of the apostles in the sanctuary, every one of them died a violent death because of their testimony, except for John, who was exiled in his old age on the island of Patmos. So this is the reason you need a transfigured vision of Christ. 
You need to see him as he is. You need to see your future, and you need to be inspired by it. Now, let's close with this. How are we going to gain this vision? How do you get the vision of the real Jesus Christ before you? Well, first of all, isn't it obvious? You've you got to read the Bible. You've got to read Revelation chapter 1 and Mark chapter 9 and a lot of other places in Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel, uh, Exodus chapter 24 and Ezekiel chapter 1 and, and on and on you go. You've got to read the Scriptures and see that the kingdom of God was God's intention from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. He is building His kingdom and His Son is the one who is bringing it to fulfillment and one day it shall be consummated. And you shall see the Lord Jesus Christ again and He shall be even more glorious than when Peter and James and John saw Him on Mount Hermon. So you read the Bible and you contemplate it and you get time away to think about it and you begin to envision who Jesus Christ is and you begin to hear His voice in a personal way from a king to his child or a king to his little brother in the case of Jesus Christ. You begin to see Him and hear Him by faith reading the Scriptures contemplating secondly you need each other i have to tell you here's one way in which i've had my own vision renewed through the years and it's through preaching uh when i became a christian i really did learn how to listen to preachers and you know as well as i do there are some good preachers and most of us are not good preachers and if you're going to get anything out of preaching you're going to have to learn how to listen to preaching You've got to train yourself to listen to preaching. You take the message from the Scriptures and you rework it. And if, it's not, if the outline's not very clear, you make it clear. You outline it as you're listening to it. And if it's not being applied very well, you apply it to yourself. And you become the instrument of the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it to your own heart. What does preaching do for us? Preaching is simply an announcement. Jesus came preaching. What did He preach? The kingdom of God. It's an announcement that God is king and that He has come and that He is fulfilling His kingdom desires. That's what preaching is. And I found early on as a Christian when I put myself under preaching and I I went where I could to hear, hear men who were really inspiring me with what? A vision of God and who Christ is. Preaching is an announcement of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason those of you who have been Christians for 50 years still need to hear the announcement. Why? Because you're going to go through the sludge again this week. And you better hear it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's King. He's unparalleled in His majesty. He rules over all the gods. Before Him, the gods are His nothing. You need to hear that every week. And that's the reason we gather for worship. is to praise the living Christ. To exalt Him. To remind ourselves that He is glorious. And if you, with tears in your eyes and depression in your heart, can't even get the words out of your mouth, you can listen to the others sing and make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the lands of the earth. And you hear the earth resounding with His glory, praising Him and His majesty. And you say, you know what? Come on, heart. Get with it. Come on, soul. Why are you disconsolate? Get up off your face. Get up before the Lord and give Him the praise that He deserves. You start talking to yourself. You need to learn to preach to yourself. Remind yourself who Jesus Christ is. Get in His presence. Get with His people who love Him. And lift up your voice and get in the business of praising Him. That's the reason. How can you, how can you live a life Monday through Saturday and never open your mouth on Sunday to praise Him? Where's the glory? Where's the transcendence? Where's the transfiguration in your theology? You don't have a thing to say about it. You never offer Him praise. You never talk to Him. You never say anything even stupid like let's make three booths. You don't even try. You've got to open your mouths. 
and praise Him and, and acknowledge Him as Lord, get in His presence and worship. That's what worship is. It's experiencing the dynamic majesty of Christ and reminding yourself who He is and reminding Him who you think He is. There's got to be this living encounter of the majestic Christ. That's what worship is all about. And that's what preaching is supposed to do. And of course we do it poorly. Who am I? I'm stupid like Peter. Let's make three booths. I come up with all kinds of stupid ideas. And I, and I, I can't proclaim His majesty. How can I do that? But i tell you what the Spirit does. He takes foolish, incompetent people like me and somehow He breaks through and we can get a little glimmer of who He might be because we, like the early disciples, find ourselves saying, Who is this? Who is this? Who even calms the winds and the waves and raises the dead And who is this who is metamorphosed right in front of my face? It's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, your Savior, the one who loves you and gave himself for you and who goes out before you this very morning when you go to the workplace in your neighborhood. He's going before you. He's the King of kings. He's sovereignly designed all of your life and he's protecting you. This is Christ. This is what we need to remember. This is why the transfiguration comes immediately Upon his telling them they must take up their cross. He's not saying take up your cross and be miserable. He's saying take up your cross and realize where this leads you. To absolute glory. I'm not leaving you alone to be miserable. I'm not leaving you to die on that cross and and be left alone to be eaten by the worms. You're going to be transfigured. That's the reason it's there. You've got to hold them together. The cross and the crown. One day we'll lay the cross down. We're through with that. It's gone, over, done, forever. But now it's the cross and the crown together because we live between the ages. The old age is passing away right before our face and the new age is coming to us right before our face and it's been inaugurated with a glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for sending us your Son and making yourself known to us in Him, fully revealing your glory in the one and only Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming among men like ourselves who do not have the capacity to contain the infinite glory of your being and whom yet you loved and tenderly showed yourself to enough so that we would know of your glory and not too much so that we would ever be destroyed by the vision. Jesus, make yourself known to us today, we pray, not just in your humiliation, but in your exaltation as well, that we may hail the power of Jesus' name and fall with all the angels prostrate prostrate before you and to glorify you in all of your divine majesty. Lord, this is our prayer. May we live in the fear of God even today. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, gents.